We're in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Now, I brought pictures today. So, uh, <laughs> this past July, my family and I, actually my wife and daughter and I, were in Jerusalem uh, for a few days. And we visited, as always, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is perhaps the most famous church in the world. Church of the Holy Sepulchre was founded in, uh, the, in the 300s AD, so it's nearly 2,000 years old, one of the oldest uh, co continuous churches in the world. Uh, it's, it's visited every year by 4 million people. It, is, it was built on the site of what they believe was Golgotha, Mount Calvary, and a few steps away, the empty tomb, both of those enclosed in this church. It's not a church like First Baptist Conroe. There's no pews, there's no pulpit, there's no stained glass. It's this huge sprawling place with all these different shrines and chapels and dark corridors and, and hidden passages. It's, it's, nothing, it's like nothing you've seen over here. Um, but one of the things that people don't understand about it is that church, which has been in existence all these years and is visited by four million, the keys to the church are actually owned by a Muslim family. And the story of that goes back to the year 1187, when the, the great Kurdish general Saladin conquered Jerusalem from the crusaders who had held it for over 100 years. And he did not destroy the church like a lot of people expected him to. Instead, he believed that the best way to keep peace was to maintain the church, keep it open so Christians could continue to worship. But he gave the keys to the Nasiba family, which was one of the, one of the two or three uh, most prominent Arab families in Jerusalem at the time. And the Nasiba family has passed those keys down from generation to generation for over a thousand years which is really impressive when you consider that at least once a week I lose my keys in my own house. <laughs> now, regularly people come to one of the Nasiba family and they'll say, why don't you, it's been after all this time, why don't, you, why don't you give the keys back to the Christians? And their answer is always the same. It's always, well, which Christians? Because there are actually five different Christian denominations that share the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and they don't always get along. Uh, it's, it's really shameful how petty they are. There are many stories about the pettiness between these different denominations. And in fact, occasionally it descends into violence. And there are stories and not too distant past of, of these uh, regal looking men in their long beards and their, and their magisterial robes and vestments rolling around on the floor trading punches like, uh, like, like gangsters from a Scorsese film. Um, and so, you know, the, the Nasiba family says, well, you know, who, who are we going to give this to? The Catholics, the, the Greek Orthodox, who? So every morning at 5 a.m., a member of the family comes and unlocks the door. And every night at 9, a member of the family comes and locks it back up again. So the first picture you see, uh, my, my wife and daughter and I got there about quarter to nine, and, and at, at nine o'clock, they got us all out of the church. Uh, the picture you see there is, is one of the priests who was spending the night in the church, who brings out this ladder to Mr. Nasiba. Now, we knew who he was immediately because even though he was casually dressed, he just had this alpha male air about him. He's just kind of walking around, smoking a cigarette, looking at things, and, and we knew, okay, that's the guy. We all, there were about 50 of us standing at a distance watching this. So he brings this ladder out and, and Nasiba takes his, uh, his cigarette and puts it on a little uh, column near the door and he climbs up the ladder. The next picture is him locking the door on top of the ladder. Now, after he's locked it, you see that little hole in the door. 
he folds up the ladder and slides it through the hole and they close it up. And then he turned to us and he said, have a lovely evening, now get out, (laughs) which made us laugh. But it's really a, a, a great metaphor for what it is to serve Christ, to worship Jesus in a culture like ours where we're not in in control, where we are not the dominant force that we once were. Uh, Your non-Christian neighbors, the world itself, they don't care that we're here on Sunday mornings. They're fine with us worshiping. They're fine with us believing what we want. But we're constantly reminded that the world is in charge. The world holds the keys to our culture. Anytime you turn on your television, Anytime you go shopping, anytime you overhear conversations at the water cooler at your office or in the hallways at your local school, you know that the world holds the keys, not us. We're in the minority here. And we could start to believe after a while that the world is strong and Christ is weak, but it's not the case. And so today I want to see how we can walk in victory when we are numerically and culturally in the minority in our world, in our country. So Colossians 2 verse 6 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So how do we walk in victory? In a culture where the world holds the keys, and the answer is in verse 8. By the way, I say this a lot lately, and I want you to continue to hear this. It sure helps if you have a Bible in your lap, either on your phone, the one in the pew in front of you, or one you brought, so you can follow along with me. Even though we put the Scriptures on the screen, I want to refer back to things we've already read, like verse 8. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive. The world may hold the keys, but the world cannot hold the keys to your heart. The world cannot hold the keys to this church. The keys to this church and to your own heart have to be held by Jesus and no one else. Let no one take you captive. Paul is speaking to people who are, who are in the vast minority in their culture in a Greek and Roman world. And they're, they're in a world in which some of their own members are starting to believe in non-Christian beliefs, false teachings. Paul says, don't don't buy into that stuff. The world throws a lot at you. In verse 8, he says, they throw at you philosophy and empty deceit. It's his way of saying, the world's arguments are well-made. They sound convincing. If you are not steeped in the Word of God, you will fall for it. 
you won't know the difference between the truth and what is false. I hope this isn't the only time you hear the Word of God this week. I hope you do more than come to church on Sundays. I hope you do more than read a quick devotional, the one I, I email out on, uh, on, a weekly, on a daily basis. Uh, I'm glad to do that, but you need more Scripture than that. Be steeped in the Word of God. He says, the traditions of men. That's another way of saying, everybody's doing it. Everybody thinks this way. These are the values by which we live in this world. And we as Christians have to say, no, not me. Even if I seem like the weirdest guy on the block, even if I seem like the, the, the nutcase woman in my office, I'm going to not buy into the values that everyone else travels by. And then he says, the elemental spirits of this world. Spiritual forces of evil are real. We don't talk about them a lot. We can't see them. But there are spirits of evil that are arrayed against us that want to discourage us, you and me, and especially our church as a corporate whole, from making Jesus preeminent. They want to hold the keys. They want to tell us what we can and can't do. And they're perfectly happy to let us come and worship God on a Sunday morning as long as it doesn't change our lives, as long as it doesn't affect the way we live Monday through Saturday. So let's get specific. Here's, here's the sermon in a sentence, okay? If, you, if we let the world hold the keys, there's no joy. Your happiness ebbs and flows with your circumstances, whether the stock market's up and down, whether that person you've got a crush on is making eyes at you or not, whether the people you love and respect love and respect you back, that determines your happiness uh, if the world is in charge. There's no joy, there's no hope. The world throws a lot at us, and we experience sadness at times. There's nothing wrong with being sad. It happens to us all. But if you have no hope in Christ, your sadness is devastating. You've got no way to come back from it. There's no joy. There's no hope. There's no change. You just go on hurting people and feeling ashamed of yourself until the day you die because there's no way to become better, and there's no purpose. There's no purpose. We just chase after our own dreams and constantly miss them. Or we get them, and even worse, we find out they weren't all we hoped they'd be. And then one day we're gone, and our lives are wasted. If we let the world hold the keys, there's no joy, no hope, no change, and no purpose. So how can we walk in victory? Paul tells us three things that we need, three reasons why we can have the victory in Jesus. Number one, because Jesus invaded our world. See, one of the differences between Christianity and all other world religions, if you, if you gel down the teaching of all other world religions, it is, here's how you get to God. Here is the path. Whether it's a, a five-fold path or an eight-fold path or a three-fold path, there's, there's steps to take to make yourself worthy of God. Only Christianity says, no, God comes to you. This, you don't need to get to God. He came to you in the form of a man named Jesus. That's the gospel. That's why it's good news. It wouldn't be good news if it was just another list of rules and requirements. He came to us. And that's good news, especially for two reasons. Number one, it means that God is better than what we thought he was. Do you remember when you were uh, in English class in uh, probably eighth grade and you learned the Greek and Roman myths, you know, Zeus and all those people? Uh, can you imagine how horrible it would be if those gods were real? They were terrible. They were terrible people. They would be lousy people, much less gods. They were awful. 
And you had to be afraid of them all the time if you thought they were real. That's what humanity thought a God was like. Somebody who was easily angered, who would, who would just squash you like a bug for fun. And then God showed up in our world in the form of Jesus, and we found out, no, he's not like that at all. No, he's, he's a God who actually wants us to be saved and will do whatever necessary to make us saved. And he, he loves the people who are sinful. He loves people who are broken. He loves people who have failed. He loves people who don't think they have it in them. He loves you. That's good news. And then there's other good news about the fact that God came to us, and that's the reason why he came. See, God didn't come down because he needed a vacation from heaven. (laughs) He didn't come down like a boss who puts on work clothes and strolls out onto the factory floor so he can see what what kinds of things are going on in his business. He didn't even come as a teacher to tell us what to do, although Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. That wasn't his main purpose. He came on a rescue mission. He came because you mean more to him than life. And that's good news. Jesus invaded our world, and therefore the world can't stop us. Secondly, Jesus took away our sin. The news gets even better. See, I, I have to tell you, a, a, here's the thing. In order for the good news to sound good, you have to know the bad news first, right? When I was, uh, well, let's not say how old I was, but let's say 15 years ago, okay? 15 or so years ago, uh, we found out that we were being audited by the IRS. And if you've ever heard that, you know, oh, IRS audits are terrible, yeah, they are. Yeah. And the funny thing is, 15 years ago when we heard that, I almost laughed because I thought, First of all, I made almost nothing. Carrie was a stay-at-home mom. I made very little money. We, I pastored a, a small to medium-sized church. Good people, but we didn't make a lot of money. I thought, why are they wasting their money on us? And in fact, I was so sure that we did everything right because I had, even though we didn't make much money, I took the extra step of hiring an accountant every year, well-respected accountant, paid good money to make sure we were on the up and up. And, and so I thought, man, they're, they're chasing the wrong guy here. They're wasting their time. But as the months dragged on and into years, I realized uh, they had something. Our accountant finally came to us and he said, listen, I'm sorry. I I made a mistake. And what he'd done is there were ministers' taxes are a little complicated and in some ways that's to our benefit, but he had failed to report several thousand dollars of taxable income for two straight years, just an oversight. And so there was taxes that we owed plus interest and penalties, but that, that led this agent to decide, okay, I'm going to go after everything. And there was a, a huge chunk of my income that was considered non-taxable by the government, but he decided that the church had not filled out the proper paperwork. And so because of this loophole, this, uh, this, this technicality, we were going to owe a lot of money. So much, in fact, that as I looked at it, I thought... I'm going to be paying this the rest of my life. And again, this was over a process of a long time. This wasn't quick. And our accountant came to us and apologized and said, this is over my head. I'm sorry. I know I got you into this, and I, but I don't know how to get you out. You need to find somebody better. God provided. There was a, a family friend of Carrie's that she'd known her whole life who came to us 
and took on our case and negotiated with the government, and so we only ended up paying what we owed and nothing more. Um, but man, that, that moment, that, that couple of years told me what it's like to face a debt that you feel like you can never pay. Some of you know that feeling. All of us should know that feeling to an even greater extent because we face a debt of sin that we can't possibly pay. Not in a thousand lifetimes. Even if we did good deeds every day from today until the day we died, we'd never pay off all the bad we've done. Because as it says in verse 13, we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but he forgave our trespasses. And not, not only that, it says he, he nailed our sin to the cross the certificate of debt against us. The, think about Jesus. When he was crucified, they, they nailed a sign to the top of the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And that sign was two things. It was, it was the official notice of the charge against him, sedition, that this man claims to be a king. But secondly, it was their way of, of taking a jab at the Jewish people. Look what we do to your king. And Jesus said, no, that's not why I'm dying. I could come down off this cross anytime. I'm dying because what's really on that sign are the, the sins of the people. My sins and your sins. And the laws that we could not keep. The laws of God that we could never keep. All of And y'all, if you've been a Christian a long time like I have, sometimes you forget what a huge thing that is. But those of you who've gotten saved more recently, or maybe you got saved later in life, you still get it. You still get what an amazing, amazing thing it is that all of your sin has been taken away. And there's nothing you need to do. There's nothing you can do. Grace means God will never love you any less than He does right now, and He can never love you anymore. It's all because of His death on the cross, because He chose to die in your place. He has taken away our sin, and so we can walk in victory. The world can't take that away from us. Number three, Jesus conquered our enemy. I want to show you on the screen verse 15 because I think this is the key verse in the whole passage. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. And that word triumphing is a very important word. See, in the, in the Roman world, if a big battle was won, and there was always a battle, right? Rome was constantly fighting. But if a, if, if a general out in Germania or in Asia or in North Africa won a big battle, he would send a messenger to Caesar and say, I've won, I'm bringing my legions back home, I want you to throw me a triumph. And Caesar had to decide because it cost a lot of money, but if, if he decided it was an important enough battle, he would throw a triumph. It was sort of like the ancient version of a Super Bowl parade. So, so the people would line the streets and, and the, the general would come in in his chariot and, and you know, the white chargers pulling it and, and he's basking in the glory and all the legions would come next and the women would, would shout their names and the, and the little boys would, would run alongside and, and want to shake their hand and then last of all would come the defeated enemy. Stripped of their armor, stripped of their weapons, shackled hand and foot, they would shuffle along as everyone jeered at them and pelted them with rocks. 
That's what the cross is. It is Jesus' triumph over our enemy. See, the cross used to be the ultimate symbol of degradation and humiliation and death. It used to be the ultimate symbol of Roman power over their enemies. And now what is the cross? The cross is the ultimate symbol of our victory. It, the, the cross was intended to kill Jesus in absolute humiliation and show him and his people, we're in charge. Jesus took the cross and made it the ultimate symbol of liberation, of victory for us. The devil himself, when he sees a cross, what he sees is his own humiliation, his own defeat. He remembers that on Good Friday, he poured out all of his fury on the Son of God with whips and nails and thorns and, and insults of the crowd, only to find out all along he was doing the Lord's work. He was accomplishing our salvation, his worst nightmare. In putting Jesus to death, the devil signed his own death warrant. Because from that day forward, any person who is in Jesus Christ, the devil can't touch them. The forces of evil cannot stop them. Satan has no hold on anyone who is under the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. And you can take that to the bank. You might say, well, so why don't I feel victorious? Why do I still struggle? I would argue out of love for you that maybe, maybe it's because you haven't yet accepted that victory. Maybe you haven't truly made Jesus fully your king and you're still letting the world and the flesh and the devil hold the keys of your life. But you can change that today. Oh yes, you can change that anytime you want. And there's no time like right now.